A warm welcome back to the Pactum Factum podcast, the superpower of everyday negotiation. I'm Lucia Cantor St. Amour with co host Nina Greeley. This one is a part two picking up from the previous episode, so let's jump right in. Let's begin with some of the ideas we received from listeners about what they would have done next in the 1998 Russia hostage situation. And if you are picking up with this podcast, with this as your first episode, you really ought to get caught up because this won't mean much to you. First, a clarification, because two people asked this. They said, who cares about Ludmilla's inflated fee? Why didn't you just pay her and use the train tickets? Well, largely because we couldn't use the train tickets. They went through the Ukraine, and according to the limited research we were able to conduct at the time, we needed a special visa to travel through the Ukraine, which we did not have. Hence my mom's attempts to enlist Ludmilla's help securing just accurate information in the first place. That makes sense. Okay, you ready now for some listeners' ideas? I'm ready. Okay, number one is catch the guards by surprise and charge at them. Okay, let's play that out, though. We were still locked in on the ship. Ah, okay. So then the next one, all run in different directions on the ship. Again, doesn't solve the locked-in problem, does it? No, exactly. Okay, this next one is fake some sort of seizure or medical emergency that would freak out the guards and get them to unlock the doors. I kind of like that one. (laughs) And then I guess after they unlock the doors, we just suddenly stop having the heart attack or whatever and make a run for it. (laughs) I kind of like that. Okay. Okay. At least we're out at that point, right? (laughs) Exactly. Okay, and now one person who listened to episode three about building rapport suggested buddying up to the guards, getting their sympathy, which was kind of along the same lines of my suggestion, too, if you'll recall, kind of getting to figure out what their motivation was and how you could maybe connect. Yeah, and I kind of love that people are incorporating the lessons. Exactly. (laughs) So thank you for that. Oh, and then finally, bribe the guards. Okay. Good stuff. Good feedback, listeners. Thank you. Oh, and by the way, I do wish to commend my mother. I was actually able to access her travel journal from the trip where she had detailed her solo negotiation with Ludmilla. And I actually think she did a lot of things correctly from a negotiation analysis. Literally not speaking the same language was, I think, the main obstacle. Side note, I was talking to my brother, Mark, just before recording today. And Nina, you know my brother, Mark. I remember your brother, yes. And he told me he was really stressed out listening to the last episode. Oh, well, I think I would think so, yes. Well, yeah, he said he had only remembered vaguely something about us being detained somewhere, but never knew all the details and that it really caused him anxiety hearing about it, even knowing we made it out safe and sound. Oh, poor Mark. He's a very (laughs) good older brother. (laughs) Yes, he is. All right. Here's the reveal, everybody. Here's what we did. 
nothing. We ignored them and waited them out. I never would have thought of that. I never thought of that. Wow. Actually, one of our listeners did write to me with the do nothing suggestion. And doing nothing can be a smart move in a lot of other negotiations as well. We'll talk more about this when we broadcast our mode episode. Wasn't it difficult to do nothing? I mean, weren't you afraid of what might happen to you? You know, oddly, I didn't feel afraid. Perhaps it was just a defense mechanism or the naivete of youth, but it helped me keep my wits about me. Although well-traveled at age 27, my father was much more so and was not feeling the same equanimity. Plus, he had a bad cold and needed to lie down. I got the feeling these guards didn't exactly answer to Ludmilla and were just as surprised as we were that she had put them on the spot. And You know, I thought about that. I mean, I wondered what their relationship was with her. So that's interesting. Yes, sorry. Go on. Yeah, yeah, I wondered if their shift would end and they'd have other places to be or at least not want to stick around, not getting paid for extra time. Remember that Ludmila, for her part, had bailed. So I proffered to my parents in a calm, low voice, look, these guys probably have to report somewhere at some point. They can't just hang around here indefinitely. We can't. We have no place we need to be. So... Let's just sit tight and be the happy, friendly, non-threatening American family. My mom seconded that strategy and also suggested that we make sure to say the words American Embassy every few sentences. That was a good call. (laughs) So that's what we did. We sat down on the floor, chatted amongst ourselves. I think my dad actually stretched out and closed his eyes, shrugged our shoulders a lot as if to signal no idea what's going on, some sort of misunderstanding. After maybe a couple hours, the men with the rifles became visibly restless and annoyed. They started whispering amongst themselves and then finally, abruptly, unlocked the door and motioned for us, with their rifles, mind you, to exit. Wow. We rose and disembarked the ship. Once we reached the concrete concourse, that's when I got scared. Wide open space surrounded us as we retreated, and I feared we might be shot in the back. Oh my gosh. We hurry, hurried towards the freeway and hailed a cab. We poured ourselves into the taxi and asked the driver to take us to the American Express office. Along the way, we saw the bank runs with armed police presence, though we didn't make sense of that until the next day when we came across an American newspaper. When we arrived at Amex, we asked them to get us out of the country ASAP, and the agent found a flight leaving for Budapest in about three hours. Sold. Phew. Wow. (laughs) Right? Wow. The following day in Budapest, we learned that the ruble had been taken off the world exchange and that Yeltsin had sacked his government the day before our departure, the very day we were at the Kremlin ourselves. So you saw a major piece of history unfolding in the middle of your personal crisis. Well, I guess we did. Never could have planned for that in our original itinerary. And now for the punchline. 
It was 2018 when I came across my Russia travel journal. My younger son was 13. My father was visiting for Christmas, and together we told him this story for the first time. My father's and my accounts of the events after 20 years were remarkably similar, practically identical. My son listened in silence to the whole story and then asked one simple question. It was a question that had not occurred to me in 1998, nor since. His question was, How much money were they asking for? I didn't know. I turned to my dad. Dad, how much was it? Oh, about $500. Wait, what? Five? I don't negotiate with terrorists. Okay, dad. Noted. Good to know. Your dad is a lot tougher than I am. (laughs) Well, I guess I know the value of my life, which comes out to, let's see, carry the three, about $167 if you round up. And then adjusting for inflation, about $285 today. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) So here's my everyday negotiation advice to all you listeners. If you take away nothing else from this podcast and stop listening after this episode, this is it. If your family is taken hostage and $500 cash, adjusting for inflation, let's say about $850, will resolve that situation, pay the money and get out of there. Exactly. (laughs) Was it a shakedown? Sure it was. But there are times when standing on principle is not the play. Remember the chocolate negotiations from episode two? Remember the students who rejected the quote-unquote unfair offer of just one out of the 10 chocolates as insulting, even though their sole job was to get chocolate? One chocolate is better than no chocolates. $500 for your family's safety and security? Sounds like a bargain. And I would drop my mic at this point if it wasn't attached to my head. (laughs) You know, know, actually, this makes me think about how, as a litigator, I found that non-response could sometimes be a very useful tactic, especially when dealing with particularly aggressive counsel. And the first time I learned this was kind of by accident. I was on the phone with opposing counsel, who was trying to intimidate me. I mean, essentially, mm. he was baiting me about the strengths of my case. He was saying things like, um, oh, you obviously don't know what a crook your client is and how bad the facts are here. Didn't you know your client did X, Y, and Z? And he was trying to get me to argue with him, and I think basically trying to undermine my confidence. Mm-hmm. And the truth is, I honestly didn't know what to say. I didn't want to say anything that might give him anything to use against my client. I didn't want to let him know my strategy that early in the case. And so I just said nothing, just absolutely nothing. I just waited him out. Mm. And eventually, just kind of like a a tired wind-up toy, he sort of just (laughs) stuttered to a stop. (laughs) And then we just went on to discuss the discovery schedule or whatever had been the focus of the call in the first place. And it, it it was just a revelation to me that by refusing to play his game, which is sort of mm-hmm. what your family did. I just took the wind out of his sails and I just deflated him entirely. And I think that can be an effective strategy. I mean, we, and it's one we don't often think about, but every once in a while, I think it's definitely the right choice. And it also harkens back to our planning episode where I talked about using silence. So the, those two points are related. So totally agree, Nina. And 
when we get to our episode on analyzing your own natural negotiation style, we'll mm. talk more about how all modes are useful and that you can navigate among them to fit the circumstances. Moving on. Now, what did I do in that last episode and the beginning of this one? I told you a story. Aha. I talked a little bit about the magic of story in a previous episode and how pioneering Goodnight Moon author Margaret Wise Brown was in the 1940s with the sensory-focused language she introduced to children's literature. She tapped into something in young children, something visceral that got under their skin and captivated them. It turns out storytelling can play a role in everyday negotiation, and we all have stories to share. Early in my legal career, I found myself in a typical settlement negotiation with opposing counsel in a case involving an employee suing for wrongful termination. We'd been at the table for a couple of hours, cautiously trading information, and each attempting to persuade the other to see how the law or a jury would favor our respective clients and why our negotiation demand was reasonable and meritorious. Right. At one point, we seemed stuck. And at least in my mind, it appeared as though we would leave the table that day without a deal. The other attorney, who had quite a bit more experience than I did, suddenly announced, let me tell you a story. Without waiting for permission, he launched into a narrative about negotiating for a rug while on a trip visiting Istanbul. I set my pen down and settled in to hear him out. And yes, I used a pen and legal pad back then. I didn't have a laptop in front of me. (laughs) (laughs) Where was he going with this? And how would the story end? He had my attention, and I always love a good story. So he unspools his tale about how the rug merchant served him tea, and they sat and talked about their families and how he thoughtfully looked through the inventory, pausing to ask about various rugs, with the merchant proudly explaining in detail the craftsmanship of each of them before narrowing in on one of them. And then more tea was poured, and I think he even said the tea merchant poured tea on the rug to show the quality of the dye and that it wouldn't run. And then the haggling over price eventually developed. He recounted of how he and the rug merchant went back and forth on price for a little while until they finally reached a number that they could both agree upon. At that point, he told the merchant, this was about an hour into their repartee, yes, that is good price. That would indeed be a good price for me. But you see, this rug is actually for my son. My son is just starting out in his career and asked me to select a rug for his new home with his new bride, and he is on a less forgiving budget than I am. So we need to reach a price that is good for my son. And the negotiation continued on behalf of the son, quote unquote. It was actually a charming little story, and we were both smiling as it drew to a close. We picked up where we left off with our own negotiation, and we were able to each find more wiggle room for a deal that would work, quote unquote, for our clients, even if the numbers we had reached before story time worked for us. Now that is a fabulous story for lawyers. I mean, it's one that could really work to connect opposing negotiators by just reminding them of what they have in common, that they're both professionals. I think that's brilliant. Well, and what I didn't understand at the time was that my more seasoned counterpart 
knew how to cast a storytelling spell to lubricate the gears of deal-making. Last year in 2021, Joshua Weiss, a PhD and co-founder of the Global Negotiation Initiative, spoke about the power of story in negotiation, which is often more about creativity than it is about compromise. Stories are a way of assimilating creativity into a negotiation and can be pivotal for a variety of reasons. Good stories create a sense of connection. When someone says, I have a story to tell you, people are intrigued and more open to listening. They invite the listener into the story, making them more curious and open to learning. What else might be going on here that I didn't think about when preparing? They can also convey complex ideas in ways that are easy to grasp. Interesting. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. People are less likely to interrupt a story than they are you listening, listing all the reasons for your demands. It also makes them wonder what will happen next, just like That's- I did. That was exactly my reaction, yes, okay. Stories are extremely effective at building rapport, and we've talked all about that, haven't we? And tend to reveal commonalities, which makes it much easier to transcend positions and discover underlying interests. They can also help save face when a party to the negotiation has gotten themselves in a, a trap with their own behavior and can break through impasse. And that is very important. Yeah. And then there's the fact that stories transcend different learning styles and convey lessons and provide relatable examples. They're disarming and nurturing, reminiscent of childhood and a parent reading a bedtime story. Importantly, they often come from an outside perspective, which can help foster trust. That is, you aren't making it about you. Oddly, even when you are telling a story about yourself, it seems to come from someplace else. Interesting. And here's a really neat little tool. Stories are excellent memory aids and easier to recall in tense moments than data. That story about haggling for the rug in Istanbul, I heard that story 22 years ago, never wrote it down, and I still remember it today, and how it made me feel. That is a really good point, and I had never thought about that. Interesting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the storyteller doesn't demand exactitude in the moment. It's a forgiving modality. Which we can use, yes. (laughs) And stories are normative. They comfort people by reminding them that this isn't the only time someone has dealt with this kind of challenge. Others have figured it out, and so can we, right? Yes. Now here's one for the lawyers out there. Stories are hard to argue. They can't be debated or discredited by the other side. This is important because although you can't change people's minds, In a situation where the parties hold two opposing ideologies, telling a story might cause them to change their own mind. A true superpower. (laughs) Yes, it's it's sort of like a a Jedi mind trick. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, it's worth mentioning the internal negotiation. What story are you telling yourself? about the negotiation and how might that be holding you back? Can you change your story? For example, are you telling yourself, 
I have no power in this negotiation. Examining your own story can help level power imbalance. Consider the example of a single company that has the piece of very specialized equipment you need. Can you improve your alternatives in some way you haven't considered and that the other party who thinks they have a hold on you also hasn't considered? You know, Lucia, in a way, that's what you and your family did in the Russia story. You decided not to play the part in the story that Ludmilla had cast you in. So you switched the narrative. Ooh, I hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> See, that's why I keep you around, Nina. <laughs> Sometimes it's worth consulting with an outside third party to check your assumptions and perspective, too. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The bottom line is that stories are universal. Every culture on the planet has a history of stories. Storytelling is ancient. There is no stronger connection between people. So next time you are preparing for a negotiation or even a difficult conversation with somebody, have a story or two in your quiver that you can share at the right moment to build rapport, ease a tense moment, break through impasse, or spur the other side's sense of curiosity so that you're both more open to listening and learning from each other. Which is the goal. Great. Thanks for listening, or even partially listening while you multitask. You never know what might stick with you. Keep your ear out for this space because we sure do appreciate your company. I'm Lucia Cantor St. Amour of Pactum Factum, which is Latin for a done deal. You can find me here on Substack and on pactumfactum.com.